Why is the agriculture sector's safety record so bad? There are so many different reasons. I mean, long hours, intense physical labour, low pay, you're at the mercy of the elements. I mean, who would want to be a farmer these days? Ahead of Farming Week, we'll talk to Yellow Wellies and a quad bike manufacturer this morning. And we'll look ahead to the return of the largest village show in the country. Something that's really at the heart of the local and the farming communities just felt really special. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Good morning, hope you've had a good week. Harvest well underway in many sectors. Sunshine expected this week, it could almost be summer. From the news this week, the AHDB has secured £3.9 million to help farmers navigate the fallout of the loss of direct payments as one of 19 organisations who have gained government funding from the Future Farming Resilience Fund to help with the transition which starts next month. The NFU and the Royal Association of British Dairy Farmers have together highlighted the shortage of dairy tanker drivers. British Wool has launched a consumer-facing e-commerce website to help drive demand for British wool products. And there's been a surge recently in tractor GPS thefts. Police are reminding us to remove both the external receiver and the internal control panel when they're not in use. In a report written by restaurateur Henry Dimbleby, the government is being urged to set a target to help reduce the nation's meat consumption by 30% within 10 years. We'll have a good look at the implications of this on next week's farming programme. And it looks like, at long last, some new legislation's on the way to tackle hair coursing. CLA Acting Regional Director Nick Sanford, good morning. What are the proposed changes? There's three main changes. One, they're going to amend the Game Act 1831 and the Night Poaching Act 1828, which is the bit of legislation mainly used in trying to prosecute people hair coursing. And at the moment, hair coursers, when they're caught, generally the level of fines are quite low. It's normally a few hundred pounds, which is completely uh, out of context with the amount of damage and the intimidation and the, the problems that they cause. And so that's going to be changed now. So there's going to be an unlimited fine and up to six months imprisonment. So that's the first thing. So the, the penalties are going to be increased The second good thing is they're going to introduce a new criminal offence which is referred to as going equipped for hair coursing. So basically if uh, the police see people driving around the field or whatever and they haven't even let the dog out but if they are there with dogs and all the other equipment that that they use for hair coursing that it it becomes a criminal offence in itself. And finally, and this also is very important, is... um, there's a new power going to be introduced for police to be able to reclaim on conviction the costs of kenneling dogs seized in connection with hair coursing. One of the great problems that police forces have is that seizing the dogs is actually a very good way of deterrent and it's the one thing that really stops the hair coursers in their tracks um, because if they haven't got any dogs they obviously can't hair course. But at the moment, all the costs of keeping those dogs in kennels until a conviction is made cannot be reclaimed from the the criminal. So um, it's a cost to the the taxpayer, basically. So it is an obvious change to get those costs charged as part of the penalty for um, this crime. So there's three very important um, steps that I think will make a huge difference to the police's ability to control hair coursing. Nick Sanford from the CLA, thank you. Good news. Let's hope the legislation makes its way to the statute books as soon as possible. Next weekend sees the return of the largest village show in the country, Lincolnshire's Heckington Show. Much missed, like all country shows, in 2020. Chairman Charles Pinchbeck, you must be delighted the show's going ahead this year. Really exciting. I was down on the show field last night and it just 
there's a lot of chat about there's a lot of chat about things coming home, being down there, as we've all been so often for years. Yeah, you know, something that's really at the heart of the local and the farming communities just felt really special. What can we expect to see at the show, Charles? It's shorter than normal, isn't it? I mean, it is only one day instead of two, um, but actually we've worked really hard to cram most of the things that happen over the two days because actually Heckington isn't a two-day show. It's really two one-day shows. In our main ring, we normally have sports on Saturday running and national championship cycling topster and then show jumping on Sunday. Actually, we've produced a condensed main ring program which has all three events on the same day from a sort of livestock perspective traditionally we have the heavy horses mainly shires on the saturday and then livestock on the sunday i said they've been condensed out actually our shire entry is very very good in any year we'd be pleased with the shire show that we've got Um, but for livestock the focus on our county breed the lincoln longwall so we're actually running the full event for the lincoln longwalls which is actually a real highlight for them for the year also important in the breeding program because actually that's their breed sale when it's the chance to start new flocks and actually we've been really encouraged by the interest of people coming to buy Lincoln sheep start new flocks and help you know conserve that fabulous breed and there's plenty there for non-farming visitors too absolutely i was very conscious i was talking a lot about farming then this is the farming program but uh, again that's one of the great joys of heckington is that the thing you're particularly interested in is there in strength but actually there's lots of other things to see as well so we've got a, a fabulous heritage area with lots of different things about the amazing heritage of our, our very special county tray stands and food stands as well and you have a tribute act to one of my favorite bands on in the evening we always have a sort of tribute band for one of the you know the really popular acts of all time this year it's fleet with mac the Stephen concert band it was from last night of the proms and then we have an absolutely staggering firework display at the end the actual area in the the sort of big finale sets the actual area of sky is an acre it is a wonderful wonderful evening and and it's if we it's more commercial thing here it's all in the one day ticket 10 pounds for the whole day come at nine o'clock stay till 10 p.m it's really really pleasing to see that the show is going ahead charles thanks for coming on this morning and i wish you a very successful show on saturday look forward to seeing you there thank you very much i look forward to seeing you steve as well I'd like to bet that our crop doctor, Sean Sparling, will be there too. Morning, Sean. Yes, very good morning to you, Steve. Heckington Show. Do you know, I can remember going when I was 16 years old. I'd just started work. I bought a roll of spanners, a socket set, and a few other bits, and I still have them. I still use them every day, and they're as good now as they were then. So you can buy some decent stuff at the Heckington Show. And it's one of those things. We really all should be supporting these shows. They're a great day out, very well organised. I shall shoot over if time allows, and I shall take my mask with me. Um, I know I don't don't particularly have to wear a mask outdoors in at these events anymore but I've got that used to pulling faces at people behind my mask as I'm walking about that I'm not actually sure I can stop so I'm going to keep my mask on just in case I drop my guard agronomy then harvest looming very large final approach is now crop senescent getting underway over the next few weeks that will accelerate particularly if we get the hot weather they're talking about but pretty much all done agronomy wise by the shouting in all but vegetables sugar beet and potatoes blighty weather every day by the way for the latter so don't drop your guard yet winter barley hurtling down the finishing straight 20% moisture very easy to find a lot of people asking me about whether they should put glyphosate on pre-harvest where things like volunteer wheat or cooch are still green in the crop as always check with your buyer to make sure they're happy with that but there's nothing wrong with glyphosate totally safe but some people can be a bit funny about it 
But with barley moving so quickly and with glyphosate likely to take at least two and probably three weeks to dry out the green volunteer wheat or cooch to a level which is acceptable to you, the barley might well be ready to go in seven to ten days' time. So you have to ask yourself if there's any value in doing so, particularly with the price of glyphosate now, double what it was 12 months ago. So unless it's going to do the job you want it to do, what's the point in doing it? And remember, and the same goes for wheat, oats, peas, beans, barley, you cannot use glyphosate on a seed crop or one that you're intending to use for seed. The glyphosate can affect the germination and the vigour, so don't do it. That's the first thing. The second thing is 30% moisture is a very important moisture when it comes to using glyphosate pre-harvest as a management tool to even crops up or to manage the weed. It is not a desiccant. So if you were to go at 35 or 40% moisture, not only will you compromise the quality and shrivel the grain up, you'll affect the yield detrimentally because it can still translocate back to the grain if you go at those levels. So 30% moisture in cereals, that's when the grain will hold the imprint of a pressed-in thumbnail without popping it back out at you. I have no wheat close to that yet, but as I said a minute ago, winter barley is there in some cases. The right timing in peas is when the peas in the top pods are rubbery and take a lot of pressure before they split. The peas will still be a greeny colour. The bottom pods will be white or brown and parchment-like, and the peas will be rock hard. The middle pods will be a pale green or a yellowy colour, and the peas are very, very hard rubbery. Speak to your agronomist about it. Spring beans, winter beans, the right timing is when the majority of the pods have gone black. The horn will still be green, but the pods will be black. Linseed, you need a fair bit of green in the bottom of the straw in order for the glyphosate to actually move round and do its job at killing off the plant. So the seeds will be a milky tea colour, and there'll be about an inch of brown below the bowl. Um, but keep those water volumes up. No matter what crop you go at, keep your water volume up to get the coverage. Um, 30%, by the way, in all seed rape, as I keep saying, seeds in the middle pods are what you want to look at, and they'll be mostly brown with flecks of green in amongst them. All the seeds in the bottom pods, there won't be any green, it'll all be brown or black, and the seeds in the top pods will be green with flecks of brown just starting. So 30% is also crucially important because it means these crops are physiologically ripe, and that means the glyphosate cannot translocate back to the grain itself. In other words, the glyphosate stays in the stems and it doesn't hit the seed. Of course, direct contact with the seed from the glyphosate applied at that time it can't happen in most cases anyway because the pods are protecting all seed rapeseed, peas and beans, and the glooms or the little envelopes are protecting the wheat. But 30% moisture, 200 litres plus water for coverage, stay out of temperatures above 23 degrees to maximise the efficacy and minimise any evaporation. That all makes sense. Remember also so we have an emergency authorization for minor use, an emu for spotlight, carfentrazone for pre-harvest use on seed crops of peas, beans, lupins and lentils. That's in place till the 23rd of September. One litre per hectare maximum, one application per crop, 18 metre aquatic buffer zone, three star low drift nozzles must be used and you cannot use that on crops which are intended for human or animal consumption, which can complicate it in case your seed crop is rejected because what you're going to do with it then. So again, talk it through with your advisor. Sugar beet, I think that with most crops now well over 20 leaves, any further threat from Mises persky and uh, influx of virus now is insignificant. We have to trust the BBRO forecast system because what else do we have? Thus far, it appears to have been pretty accurate in its forecast. And I still have beet that hasn't actually reached 
threshold yet and it hasn't had any insecticide. It looks just fine. We'll see if I'm still saying that in a couple of months' time, but it is what it is. It's all in when it comes to IPM, and IPM has driven all my decisions this year, just like every other year. A few black bean aphids uh, starting to appear in spring beans. Nothing close to the 10% of plants infested IPM threshold, so I'm letting the predators deal with that for me. Beans and peas are podding pretty well, still quite green, but that's all likely to change very, very rapidly, particularly if we get the heat over the next couple of weeks. I have no oilseed rape harvested yet. My first pieces were sprayed off earlier this week, 12 weeks from the first flowers to cutting, they used to say, but a uh, little bit of pod midge out on the outsides as ever, but, you know, keeping it all cross for a bumper oilseed rape harvest. So this is the most frustrating bit of the year in many ways for an agronomist. We can't do any more for the crops we look after. We can watch the last of the season's sticky ups come and there's nothing we can do about them other than get out there and pull them we just need bags of sunshine to ripen these crops off now we've had enough rain it's the july and august sun we need to be praying for so stay safe keep praying enjoy looking at the fruits of your labors thus far and let's see what the next seven days bring Thanks, Sean. That's Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services, who you can contact via his website, sasagronomy.co.uk. Farm Safety Week starts tomorrow. We'll hear from Farm Safety Foundation Manager Stephanie Barkley in a moment. First, ATVs or quad bikes are an area of safety concern, particularly concerning the wearing of helmets. Richard Gregg, District Commercial Manager for BRP, representing the brand Can-Am, what is the legal position around wearing helmets on quad bikes? There is no requirement to wear a helmet in there, which a lot of people do find amazing that there is no requirement for that. But it is the first thing, really, that everybody should be looking to have because you only get one head. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the helmets are not a fortune, are they? Let's face it. No, they're really not. Something suitable that probably starts from as little as £20. And there are almost like agricultural specific helmets that you can buy. And I, I must stress that this is all down to the rider or the owner of the machine to properly assess what it is that their rider or the rider needs. For example, you can buy helmets uh, which are sort of sculpted to allow the ears to be not covered. It's quite important, you know, if you're operating in a farming environment, you need to be able to hear what's going on, whether that's because you're chasing rounding up livestock or whether you need to maybe hear a, a warning shout that somebody's shouting to you. And, you know, sometimes a helmet that covers your ears might not be suitable for the task. So it's really important that people essentially risk assess what it is they're doing. And apart from helmets, you and your colleagues as manufacturers do take some responsibility for rider safety, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it starts with us. So if, if we all subscribe to the theory that, you know, more awareness and more training is a good thing, then that passes on down through. So we then work with our dealers to try and make sure that they are all trained in the correct way to hand a machine over. And therefore, that means that the dealers are then passing on that knowledge and informing uh, their customers of some of those pitfalls and the importance, hopefully, of, of taking some training. But, you know, it's it's not mandatory, um, but we do heavily encourage people to seek a bit of uh, awareness and uh, some training. That's Richard Gregg from BRP. Stephanie Barclay is the manager of the Farm Safety Foundation. Stephanie, I'll ask you the question then. Why is the agriculture sector's safety record so bad? There are so many different reasons. I mean, long hours, intense physical labour, low pay. You're at the mercy of the elements. I mean, who would want to be a farmer these days? <laughs> and, you know, for an industry that actually accounts for about 1% of the working population, it now accounts for almost a quarter of all workplace deaths. You know, it's 20 times higher than any industry average. 
a lot of these accidents can be avoided. And that's the frustration that you have by using safe stop, by taking keys out, by making sure trained people are using the machinery that, you know, you have a safe driver, a safe site. But also this year, we're saying that livestock is right up there now with um, moving vehicles. And that is people losing their lives, not just with bulls, but actually with cattle. Because it's not just losing lives, is that there's lots of accidents as well. Yeah, there's, I mean, there are around about 14,000 injuries in farming every year. And that can be everything from, you know, losing a limb, respiratory illnesses. There are a lot of different musculoskeletal injuries. There are a lot of things that get reported in farming, but also there's an awful lot of near misses that don't get reported. Do you think it's getting better or worse? So unfortunately, um, and I'm really sad to say it, that the results are getting worse. Last year, we seemed to see an improvement with 20 farm workers losing their lives on our farms. Now, I'm sorry that that is 20 families. That are, they're not statistics, they're real people and real families and communities. But this year, that figure has jumped to 34. So 34 of our farm workers lost their lives over the last year by just going to work and not coming home in the evening. Mm, absolutely. Now, Farm Safety Week is coming up, starts tomorrow, and lots of things involved in this. Just talk us briefly through what's actually happening as part of Farm Safety Week. The first thing is that we've taken the um, slogan this year to rethink risk and it's just honestly thinking about the risks that we take every day and whether we think about them for example making a cup of tea in the morning put it up to your mouth you're not going to drink it straight away because it'll burn you that's a risk assessment we've a bit on tiredness too because we know that farm workers work 15 16 hour days we can't and we won't tell them not to because it's what they feel they have to do so what we're doing is we've done a lot of research into fatigue management. And actually, we're not doing things like bringing in supposed specialists on the issue. We've asked farmers themselves, how do you deal with tiredness? How do you deal with those long hours? And we're sharing those messages throughout the day. One thing I've noticed on one of the other days then is the expression, farm safety may not cost the earth, but not doing it may cost your life. It's a nice expression. And it doesn't have to be an expensive thing, does it, to sort this out? No, not at all. Tidying up your yard will cost you nothing. But a tidy yard and the health and safety executive have a fantastic resource called What a Good Farm Looks Like. And it's like a little book to talk about what it's, you know, what a safe farm looks like. And it's just taking that idea and making sure everything's in the right place, that ladders are stored properly, that chemicals are, you know, clearly away from the public and away from little prying hands. And there are areas for children that children understand their responsibilities and what their limitations are on the farm as well. I mean, and anything is not that expensive if you're comparing that with the cost of a life. (laughs) You know, so it's thinking about that and the practicalities around it. So lots of webinars, lots of different topics going on on Farm Safety Week. How do we access this? Where do we get the information? Where's it all taking place? Yeah, get involved by following us at Yellow Wellies UK on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We have yellowwellies.org. There's a lot of really good guest blogs going in uh, through the week. Follow the conversation, hashtag Farm Safety Week. We can't do this on our own. So we're bringing the farming unions. We're bringing the health and safety executive. We're bringing lots of industry partners because we all share the same dismal safety record and we all want it to change. So get involved, take part, learn 
and let's get those figures down, eh? Yeah, and basically share your best practice with us. We want to see what good looks like. We want good to be the norm. We want positive behaviours, positive attitudes. Don't roll your eyes at a risk assessment. You know, just rethink risk. All right, Stephanie, thanks very much indeed once again for joining us on the Farming Programme and good luck with Farm Safety Week. Thanks very much, Steve. Let's see how the markets have behaved this week. Here's Openfield's Kit Dickinson. Morning, Kit. Well, good morning, Steve. Another week and another USDA report, which surprised the trade with a sharp downward revision of the US spring wheat crop due to the ongoing drought in the northern plains, western midwest and Pacific northwest regions. Bizarrely, they appear to have concluded that the drought stopped at the Canadian border and only lowered the Canadian crop by 500,000 tonnes, when some are now reducing their crop by 40% along with other small grain crops including maize, barley, oats and sorghum. The debate over whether the US crop has had enough moisture rumbled on with the forecast proffering varying amounts of rain, some of which verified, but that is not too much. In particular, the Dakota, Minnesota, Lower and Nebraska regions. Indeed, excess rains in Illinois resulted in the largest drop in the US weekly crop condition report. Whatever the eventual outcome, the USDA decided to maintain their trend record yield in their report. The next two weeks are critical for the US maize crop and the forecast is moving to hotter, drier conditions, which is exactly what the crop does not need. Early Russian wheat yields were disappointing in the south, which were expected to be the best. This was put down to dryness during the early drilling period and higher than expected indices of winter kill. Russian and Kazakh spring wheat crops are also suffering from drought conditions led to the production cuts in both countries by the USDA, although trade estimates are going lower. The hot, dry conditions will also be not what the Ukrainian maize crops desires as it comes in to the pollination period. Too much rain in the central and western Europe is a problem which is now delaying harvest, but is raising some quality concerns as well. Early harvest in France is reporting some quality and yield issues, whilst Germany is suffering from some devastating floods. So looking at barley this week, old crop markets, they trundle on with most sheds now nearly clear and limited interest from the consumer alike. Winter barley harvest appears to be underway with one or two making a start this week. We have not yet heard of any malting samples being cut as yet. With the weather forecast moving to a warm, dry period, we should see an acceleration of progress over the coming weeks. This contrasts with areas in Europe, such as Germany, where heavy rainfall has caused flooding, killing several people, sadly, along with affecting river traffic on the Rhine, which has had to close parts of the network due to high water levels. The French winter crop has restarted and with sample results reflecting better quality following on from the early samples that we were seeing last week. Oilseed rate, there were no changes to the US soybean ending stocks. However, there were new crop forecasts seeing yield and production numbers unchanged on the month before, against expectations of small revisions downwards. On the face of it, a relatively neutral USDA report with the door left open for revisions lower in the next update due to weather pressures. South American crops and small reductions in the Argentinian production, with Brazil left unchanged. Markets reacted more strongly to the ongoing weather issues in Canada, which saw canola prices set to new record highs. On the continent, Germany has made a small upward revision to its output at 3.68 million tonnes. France looks set to sit below the 3 million tonnes, and very recently the Ukraine, a key exporter to the EU, you will recall, has revised its production lower, matching the French 3 million tonnes down circa 200,000 since the end of May. So moving on to prices this week, feed wheat for July 200 to 204, still holding strong. Moving into new crop for August 162 to 165. 
November 166 to 169, February 169 to 172, May 173 to 176. Milling wheat premiums are currently 18 to 20 pounds. Feed barley for July-August off the combine is 132 to 135, November 142 to 144, February 144 to 146, May 146 to 148. Malting premiums are circa £25 for a 185 nitrogen. And lastly, Orsid Rape, July-August 442 to 445, November 450 to 453, February 453 to 456, and May 456 to 460. Many thanks, Kit. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Dry and warm with plenty of sunshine for the most part this week. Just a light and variable breeze today. Dry and sunny with highs of 26. Monday brings a light easterly dropping temperatures to around 20 Celsius with a bit more cloud and maybe some light rain. Brighter again on Tuesday and Wednesday, with the wind staying in single figures from the east, dry with highs in the low 20s. That light easterly stays for the end of the week, with more cloud and some rain forecast on Friday. Finally, if you think you're Britain's fittest farmer, the qualifiers take place in September and there's still time to enter. Go to fwi.co.uk slash bff. Hard to believe, but no, I will not be taking part. I'm not a farmer. Next week on The Farming Programme, we'll discuss the Dimbleby Report and look ahead to 24 hours in farming just a couple of weeks away. I'm Steve Orchard. Until then, enjoy the sunshine and have a good farming week.